You're listening to an episode of the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 137th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, I'm delighted to continue the topic on education by talking with my friend and choice theory colleague, Steve Tracy, who has a long history in education. Steve is a lifelong public school educator and an advocate for parent choice in education. He has served as a superintendent of schools for the town of New Milford, the city of Derby, and the Connecticut Department of Children and Families. As a senior vice president for Edison Schools, he created several public schools of choice in the Northeastern United States. Prior to that, he taught American history with the Lakeland, New York Public Schools and served as assistant superintendent of schools in Farmington, Connecticut. Dr. Tracy earned his undergrad degree in public and international affairs from Princeton University, his master's from Columbia University, and his doctorate in educational leadership from Harvard University. As the father of a handicapped son, Dr. Tracy is an advocate for the disabled and a longtime member of the Board of Directors of Ability Beyond. He is also a board member for Healing the Children, an organization that delivers free medical care to children in need throughout the world. Dr. Tracy supports the application of William Glasser to the advancement of personal well-being and organizational success as a board member with the Glasser Institute. Dr. Tracy and his wife, Mary, have resided in Goshen, Connecticut since 2004, where they manage a small dairy farm. They have three adult sons. Welcome, Steve, and thank you so much for agreeing to talk with us about a topic I know you are quite skilled in. Well, thank you. Happy to be with you. Great. Let's start with your connection to choice theory. And would you tell our audience how having an understanding of choice theory affected your thinking about education? Well, first, I have to say my connection to choice theory is you. (laughs) I took my first choice theory certification course with you in some place in Pennsylvania a long time ago. And Yes, uh, I remember. It was Danville, Pennsylvania, (laughs) and it was right in the middle of the state, and it was a long time ago. About 30 years ago, I had the good fortune of hearing Dr. Glasser give a lecture in Danbury, Connecticut. And he said something that has stuck with me ever since and really turned my head on this whole issue of relationships with students and how you inspire them to work hard at the business of of learning. And this is what he said. He said, I know a lot of people here in this audience are working with low-income children, children from poor neighborhoods, disadvantaged families, whatever you want to call them. And he said, that means that your work as educators is that much easier. And a hush fell over the crowd. (laughs) And um, you can see by the look on people's faces that they were sure he meant to say harder. But uh, no, he meant what he said. And he went on to explain. He said, if you believe that all human behavior is inspired by those five basic needs for safety, belonging, power, freedom, and fun. And if the youngsters you're working with don't get enough of that where they live, but they get it from you, you have the basis of a very powerful relationship through which you can challenge them to work hard at things that they might have thought they couldn't do. So he said, your job is easier, but only if you understand. And right then and there, I decided that I needed to understand. I started reading his books and taking his training, starting with you, Kim. It's really made a tremendous difference to my outlook as a school leader and and as an individual. 
I've told many rookie teachers that these are the ideas I wish someone had shared with me when I started out in the profession. And frankly, if I had known this stuff before I had children, I would have been a better father. I'm almost sure of it. That being said, I think before I encountered all of these ideas, my notion of how you improve a school basically boiled down to hire smart people who are accomplished in their academic areas, be clear about the goals in terms of student achievement, be clear about the measures, and then expect people to work hard to achieve those goals and apply rewards. In the case of students, it's grades. In the case of teachers, I was a big advocate for merit pay. I thought your pay ought to be tied to how well your kids were doing. And then on the other side of the rewards coin is penalties, trying to weed out people that weren't hitting those goals. What I now know, looking back on that, is that was a classic external control, (laughs) reward and punish kind of approach to trying to get people to do what I wanted them to do, which was teach children. As a result of my course with you and my reading and my other coursework with the Glasser Institute, I now see the value of trying to inspire performance from the inside based on the basic needs that I mentioned before and based on something that Dr. Glasser calls the caring habits, the relationship building habits, that that's the way you really inspire people coming from the inside to work hard at anything. It took me a long time to realize that you can't bribe or punish people into consistent high levels of performance. So that was a a big aha moment about 29 years ago. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. And yet we still keep trying to make people do what we think they should do for their own darn good. Why do you think so many students struggle in school and aren't as successful as we or they might like to be? I think a lot of it has to do with the climate of most of our schools. And by that, I mean... Most of the public schools that I'm aware of, and probably a lot of the private schools, operate on what Dr. Glasser would call an external control approach, the kind of rewards and punishment approach that I was describing from my younger years. And that can mean for a lot of students, those who don't take naturally to the academic rigor of a school, that can mean a rather negative experience, both in terms of a sense of belonging and connectedness to the school, a feeling that, hey, if I didn't show up tomorrow, I'm not sure anybody would miss me. Of course, grades can have a very negative effect if you're getting low grades and it's a constant reminder that you're not doing well, you may not be very bright. And then, of course, there's the discipline system, which lands heavily on a lot of kids. The notion that if I kick you out, That's going to teach you a lesson and you will not do whatever it was that you did. Get involved in a fight, refuse to take your hat off, whatever it was. By kicking you out of school for a few days, then you will learn a lesson. Of course, what you learn is that, once again, you don't really belong here and that you're subjected to the external control of low grades and punishment. Plus, as kids get older, as they get into their teenage years, it's fair to say that the need for freedom and the desire to make more choices in their lives grows. And in a lot of schools, students are very constrained about where they can be, what they have to learn, how they need to behave, how they need to dress. And all of this can land on a significant segment of the student population in a way that they really don't want to be there. And so you have truancy and absenteeism and misbehavior. And that all, of course, then lands on the teachers and makes their job all the more difficult. I think that's a lot of it. There are a lot of children in our, at least public schools, and I'll say that because that's where I've spent my career, a lot of students who could be working harder, and that includes youngsters that are getting good grades. You even ask an A or a B student, Are you working about as hard as you could work at the business of learning in this school? And usually before they even answer, they'll laugh and they'll say, no, of course not. 
either I'm getting poor grades and I'm going to work just hard enough to get a D plus because I do want to get that high school diploma, or I'm working about as hard as I need to do to get a B or an A. A lot of kids could be working harder if they saw for themselves the value of learning inspired from their own needs and interests rather than imposed by the school. Yeah, I really like that. How do you think choice theory would help with that problem? There are many things about choice theory that I think would speak to a more positive experience for kids in school. One is uh, relationship building. I think almost everyone would say, everyone who's an educator would say, we want to develop positive relationships with our students. Not necessarily that they have to like us, but they have to see us as a positive person in their lives. Very few people, however, go beyond that to explain how one goes about forming a positive teacher-student relationship. That's one of the things I really have appreciated about Dr. Glasser's writing and teaching over the years. He gets very specific. He talks about those five basic needs and respecting the fact that students need to feel safe, not just physically safe, but psychologically safe, safe from embarrassment, safe from bullying. So I need to present myself and organize my classroom in a way that sends that message to every student. This is a safe place. This is a place where you can try things and fail and try again. The second is belonging, a sense of connectedness, making sure that I'm paying attention in my classroom to youngsters who may be on the fringes or sitting in the corner or the one that's never chosen. I need to address that. Power is a big thing in the school world. If you understand power to mean the feeling that comes from being good at something whether it's academics or music or art or athletics or whatever it is, I am good at something and I'm recognized and respected by my peers for that fact. That's very important. A lot of kids, when you ask them where and when in your school day do you feel powerful, they don't know what you're talking about because they never experience it. Using the basic needs, using also the caring habits and one's interaction with young people, listening, respecting, encouraging, negotiating differences, all of those things, if applied in a school setting, send a message to young people, this is a place where I can be powerful, where I can grow, where I belong. If you do all those things, one thing will happen right away is absenteeism will go down because youngsters don't avoid places where they feel their basic needs being met. All of this, of course, as you know, is easier said than done. And it's a real challenge, I find, to persuade educators, especially veteran educators, that they should embrace or at least consider some of these ideas. I tell people that the only problem that some of my fellow educators have with choice theory is the choice part and the theory part. The choice part, because people misinterpret that word to mean, oh, you're going to let the students choose to do whatever they want to do. You're going to let the kids run the school. Of course, if you say that, that just tells me you haven't read the book. There is a concern about, from on the part of teachers, of, about sort of unilateral disarmament. If I let the students uh, have too much to say about the way things go, I'm going to lose control. And then the other problem they have is with the theory part. And it's typical people will say, look, I am busy to the point of exhaustion. I've got lessons to plan. I've got teaching to do. I've got grades. I've got exams. I've got discipline. I don't have time for theory. I'm too busy doing stuff. Of course, what they've missed is that if you're busy working with the wrong theory, then no wonder you're exhausted. If you don't have the proper insights into why other people, including your students, why they do what they do, and how you can influence their behavior for the better in a non-coercive way. If you don't have a theory or a psychological model that helps you understand that, no wonder you're exhausted. And I think that's why a lot of teachers, maybe now after the pandemic, it's kind of exacerbated, but even before the pandemic, there was something of a brain drain, a departure of teachers from the public education world. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that most of them have been brought up in and they've bought into 
this external control rewards and punishment approach to dealing with kids. It doesn't work. The kids don't like it. And when you see that you're not getting results, then you're not happy. And people get burned out from all that. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you why you think so many teachers are leaving the profession. Is that the main reason you think? Not all teachers, not even most teachers are leaving, but a noticeable number are leaving. Part of it, I think, is the reaction to the last couple of years with the pandemic, where people were afraid for their safety and they're being asked to teach to a class on Zoom or teach to a half a class in the room and half a class on the camera. And that's extremely challenging. But even before that, and I'm remembering back to my teaching years, way back in the previous century, <laughs> one of the reasons that teaching is so tiring if you do it well, is that you're functioning on three psychological levels simultaneously almost all day long. One is instructional. You have lessons to deliver. You have learning to impart. Second is crowd control, managing youngsters, making sure that they're in their seats and paying attention and doing what they're supposed to be doing. And then there's the entertainment dimension. You've got to make this flashy enough to draw their attention. When I was a teacher, my competition was MTV. But they didn't get to watch that until they went home after school. Now, teachers are competing with entertainment systems that are literally in the palm of the student's hands. When you have to be an instructor and a manager and an entertainer all at the same time, all day long, that's exhausting. Don't forget the relationship that we want them to build. So you can oh, add for a fourth layer of relational to all oh, of that. And counselor, all of that. Behind it all is that most of us grew up with and didn't even question the idea of external control. How else can you get people to do what you want them to do? Either offer rewards, which we would rather do because that feels nicer, but we will default to punishments when the rewards don't work. And we can't imagine any other way to function. I feel obligated as a teacher or as a father to, quote, make these young people do what they need to do. If I can do it with rewards and being a nice guy, I'll do that. But when that doesn't work, I will fall back on four grades and you go to the office and maybe you won't even graduate. But that's the ultimate punishment. Because that doesn't work with a lot of kids, especially youngsters who may not have the support at home that they deserve or for whom a C or a D is okay, I'm getting by, then that doesn't work. And as a teacher, you become frustrated and, and disappointed. There's a lot of factors, but I think those are the main ones. You make choice theory sound really great and that it would help so many schools. Why do you think it's not more widely embraced in our schools? It runs counter to this notion of external control, rewards and punishments, which really forms the basis for not only schools, but most institutions, most relationships in our lives run that way. If you were to say to school administrator or teacher, can you imagine running your school without failing grades and without punishments for nonviolent offenses? They have a hard time imagining that. And just speaking of offenses, I do believe that you need as a school leader to be prepared to exclude students from school if they do certain things that disrupt the learning environment for everybody else. If they assault somebody or threaten somebody, if they're bringing drugs or weapons into the school, or if they're persistently disruptive in a way that the teaching and learning just can't proceed, you need to put them out, okay? And I've done that. But what you should not do is equate that suspension or exclusion with having addressed or actually solved the problem. What you're doing there is simply protecting the learning environment from behavior that you can't tolerate. But that's only the first and in some ways the easiest step. I can suspend a student in about 10 minutes. I've got the uh, suspension letter already on my computer, call him into the office, listen perfunctorily to his side of the story, call the parents, issue the letter, done. 
What now needs to happen, though, one needs to get to the heart of the matter. From a choice theory perspective, which of the basic needs was this child trying to meet by the behavior that we found unacceptable? And how can we address that concern and help the student understand how to meet those basic needs in a way that's socially or academically acceptable? And that takes time. In a lot of school settings, the suspension is viewed as the answer when it really is just the opening step in trying to help this youngster to learn how to behave so that he can function in the school and later in life. A lot of educators find it hard to imagine not being able to issue punishments and not being able to issue failing grades. If a student doesn't do the work or they don't measure up, the consequence is... We don't like to say punishment, by the way. We know that sounds harsh. So we call it a consequence, which is that you fail. And if you earn enough of those consequences, you don't get credit. And if you lose enough credits, you don't get a diploma. We can't imagine living without that. It takes a long time to try to persuade people. It's not always successful, at least not with me. But I try to get people to think about circumstances under which they have been the focal point of coercion or punishment and whether or not it has inspired them to do quality work and rise to the occasion. And almost every time they'll laugh and they'll say, no, of course not. No, they know when they're on the receiving end of the coercive stick, what it feels like and how it doesn't work. But when they're on the other end of the stick, they're pretty sure it's going to work. And when it doesn't work, we need to get a bigger stick because we can't think of another way. And that's where the beauty of choice theory and Dr. Glasser's teaching comes in. It shows you that there is another way that you can think about and apply if you're willing to try. I wonder, as an administrator, if you also use these choice theory ideas with your teachers rather than punishment or external control. And how did that go with teachers? I try to. I think once you understand and embrace these ideas, it really has to affect every aspect of your work. I say to school principals, if I'm having an initial conversation about how these ideas might be of value in their school, be prepared for you to treat your teachers in the same way that we're talking about they should treat the students, because otherwise the hypocrisy will be deafening. So you have to be prepared to incorporate these principles into all aspects of the way you work in a school, including how you work with the adults. It's difficult in a what is often a collective bargaining setting, and there's, there's union rules and there's board policies, many of which were not built for a choice theory kind of approach. But you can always find a way in your dealing with people, at least in applying the caring habits in how you react when people make mistakes, in how you react when things aren't going the way you had hoped they would be going, to try to keep in mind the caring habits, avoiding the deadly habits, and respecting the fact that the people you're dealing with, whether they're teachers or students or parents, all have the same basic needs that you and I have. I find it to be useful, but it's difficult to implement systematically, which is why I'm so interested and intrigued by the whole Glasser Quality School effort, where you try to get the leadership and the faculty and the parents and the students of the school to embrace these ideas as the guiding principles for the whole operation. That's probably the way to see the maximum impact. But that requires lots of study by everybody involved and then a personal commitment to hold themselves and one another accountable for operating in that way. You're right. I've been in many Glasser quality schools and they're just magical places. People are happy in Glasser quality schools. And when you go to other schools, it's not common to see happy people. In one school in particular, in Traverse City, Michigan, it's called Grand Traverse Academy. When I went there for the first time, I saw teachers and students alike skipping in the hall 
And I thought, what is this place? They're skipping. And the idea that they had was, well, skipping is fun, of course. And if you're not allowed to run because running is dangerous, you could fall and hurt yourself. But skipping, not too many people fall when they're skipping. I've actually visited that school on a couple of occasions, Kim, and I saw the skipping. And it was also explained to me, and I didn't know this, that if a child has difficulty skipping, that's evidence of a cross-lateral, some kind yeah. of confusion in their brain. They're also likely to have difficulty learning and particularly with reading. That school, and I don't know whether this is true or not, I'm not an expert in this area, but that school actually had exercises identifying kids who had difficulty with skipping, trying to retrain them to be able to have the right side of their brain communicate with the left and vice versa. And if they could learn to skip better, aside from it being fun, they felt that would help them academically. I don't know of any studies, but it it was an intriguing idea. And I remember encountering a kid in the hallway in a school where I was working here in Connecticut. I was walking around the school with the principal and around the corner came this kid skipping. And then as soon as he saw the adults coming, he stopped. And I said, no, you can go on, keep skipping. The kid, the kid was amazed that he was given permission <laughs> by the superintendent to skip on down to the restroom. That's a wonderful school. And I, as I said, I had the opportunity on a couple of occasions to visit. And one of the things that a headmaster told me is that she was very comfortable with teachers using a variety of approaches in their classrooms. That is to say, some people wanted small groups, some people wanted project work, some people were more inclined to be lecturing at the front of the room. She said the important thing is that these teachers are connected to these kids with the caring habits, with respect for the basic needs. And if you have that, Almost any teaching methodology is going to work because the youngsters are engaged in the learning. And I never forgot it. Yeah, they are truly special places. And when I think back, and I do have to think pretty far back, I can tell you that my favorite teacher was someone who was very kind and caring, but also firm and mm -hmm. had high expectations. It wasn't my favorite teacher that was the one that let you do whatever you wanted. I think about my parenting with my younger son, Kyle, and there were times when he would misbehave and I'd feel compelled to have a conversation with him. And you talk about consequences. That's <laughs> the consequence. We have to have a conversation. And there was more than one time when Kyle would say to me, can't you just hit me? <laughs> Get this over with. <laughs> it, it's quicker. It's not as painful. And people think, oh, a conversation, that's really good. That's going to do something. But it really does because the kind of conversations that we learn to have in choice theory are self-evaluative conversations. So using a Socratic method of questioning, we talk to kids and grownups about whether or not their behaviors are going to match up to their ultimate goals that they want. And if they're not, we ask, what would you be willing to do that would be different, that would be more likely to get you what you want in a responsible and respectful way because that's part of being part of a community is responsible and respectful. I feel like a proud parent in a way. <laughs> I taught you your first training. I, I love how far you've come with these ideas. It's really wonderful. Well, I appreciate um, you I just, getting me started. I wanted to go back to the issue of grading. You talked before about grading and students reacting perhaps with anger at bad grades and so forth. As you're well familiar, and Dr. Glasser many, many years ago wrote a book called Schools Without Failure. And grading is another very important dimension of school settings and one that is very difficult to talk about with educators. You mess with their grade book and they're going to give you a lot of pushback. But the thing that I like about the system that Dr. Glasser recommended, first of all, he says it's standards-based. So I have to start off as a teacher saying, what is the standard of quality here that I want you to achieve as a student? And I start off with the assumption that two things are true. One is, I believe you are capable of learning this. 
And the second thing is, I believe it is worthy that you learn that this is worthwhile you knowing, and you, with the application of intelligence and effort, can learn it. Starting off with that assumption, if you reach the standard, that's a B. If you exceed the standard, that's an A. Anything less than the standard is an incomplete, which means you haven't met the standard yet. And that means that you're not finished, and neither am I as your teacher. Because, as I said, I feel it's important for you to learn this, and I believe you're capable of learning it. And so we're going to take another run at it. And it may take us two or three times as long as I had hoped, maybe two or three times as long as other people in the class. That's okay. Because I want you to learn this, not only because it's important, whatever this is, but also because I want you to have the experience of doing something well, which if you're a D minus student, you may never have had that experience of doing something well. And if I can work with you and bring you to the point of truly producing quality, I'm not giving you anything, quality that I can recognize as having met the standard, my guess is next time it's not going to take you two or three times as long because you now see yourself in a different light. It's tough to get up the hill. But once you get there, and once the student sees herself or himself as a capable learner, then a lot of great things can happen, and your life and my life are going to be a lot more enjoyable in this classroom. But it starts from the assumption that we don't give up on a kid and give him a C- minus or a D plus and simply move on, but we stay with them and bring them to a point where they can be proud of real accomplishment. The other thing that's nice about it is there's no credit for substandard work. In the traditional grading system, if you get a D, that's substandard work, but you're going to get credit and you're going to get a diploma, but you're never going to experience what it means to be an accomplished learner. That whole thing of grading and how it really should become the teacher and the student against the problem or the teacher and the student against the standard rather than the teacher against the student. I think that's how you take a lot of the emotion and the anger out of it. And you give the student the notion that this is not easy, but you can do it. And I'm going to stick with you and help you do it. That makes all the difference. Yeah, it definitely does. So, Steve, we're coming to the end of our time. I just want to see if you have anything else you'd like to add. Well, I'm both happy and concerned to see the explosion of interest in social emotional learning in this country over the last few years. So-called SEL, it's the, how people refer to it, particularly in the wake of the pandemic. A lot of recognition of the emotional toll that that took on students. The National Assessment of Educational Progress came out last week with the latest round of fourth and eighth grade scores. They were all down. And so there's been this kind of explosion of programs and conferences and books about social emotional learning. That's good in a way because it gives attention to a dimension of learning that's very important. How youngsters experience school on an emotional level, how they feel about themselves, how hard they're willing to work. The concern I have is that it's also become very commercialized. Everybody who's got a book or a conference is slapping an SEL label on the front cover without necessarily rethinking the content. It's just a marketing thing now. Everybody's got to be talking about SEL. And very few of these approaches are grounded in a coherent psychological model, such as choice theory or others. That is to say, it's a bunch of activities. Here's a poster. Here's a bunch of questions. Here's an activity in the classroom. This is SEL. Without helping the teachers to understand what is the psychological model underlying all of this activity. Why do these kids do what they do? Why are the things that we're recommending likely to help them think more clearly about who they are and where they want to go? So the absence of a sound psychological model is very telling. Now, the other thing is that almost all of it focuses on kids. SEL is something we do for students for 45 minutes twice a week, when really it should start with the adults and it should infiltrate the total climate of the school. 
everything from how lessons are conducted to how conversations go to discipline to grades to activities, all the rest of it. It's not just something for the students. It's something that we as adults must initially embrace and then model it so that the youngsters can see the value of the approach. I'm happy to see lots of attention to social emotional learning, concerned about how vacuous a lot of it is, absent any deep psychological understanding. And that's where I think choice theory can come in. And I tell people, you don't necessarily have to embrace Dr. Glasser's ideas. You should look at them. I haven't found them very powerful. But if that's not what resonates with you, find another author or another model. But by all means, get yourself well-grounded in answering the question, why do people do what they do? And how can one person influence another person in a positive way to do better? If you don't have a model that answers that question, then you're just running around and hoping for the best. That's my take on the SEL craze. Happy to see it, but concerned about some of the dimensions. Well, I totally agree with you on that. Now, I know that you recently retired again, I'm going to say. (laughs) So what are you doing these days? Because I know you're not a person to sit around twiddling your thumbs. So what's next on the horizon for you? And how can people reach you if they're looking for more information? The first thing I'm trying to do is help out a little more than I have on the uh, on the goat farm that Mary and I have up here in northwestern Connecticut. We live in a beautiful section of the state, and that's something that I want to spend more time on. But in terms of the educational interest, I've appointed myself as the Johnny Appleseed of Choice Theory for the state of Connecticut. That's an unpaid position. It's unappointed, but uh, I've appointed myself which really means that I'm looking for any way that I can to get the ideas that you and I have been talking about in front of teachers and school leaders and to encourage them to at least take a look and to understand that there is a different perspective that can contribute to the success of your school. And wherever I can find fertile ground for that, I'm happy to go and talk and encourage. Beyond that, I'm hoping enough people will get interested. They may want to pursue the Glasser Quality School model or get involved with the training that the Glasser Institute offers. But that's where I'm hoping to spend a lot of my time now that I have more of it. Wonderful. My email address is my name, which is Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Tracy, T-R-A-C-Y, and the number seven, stephentracy7 at gmail.com. You can find me there and I'll answer you back. All right. Excellent. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. Good. So I really appreciate you joining us today, Steve, to talk about your experience in education and your knowledge of choice theory and how it can help. I'm sure our audience is going to find this information useful, especially the ones that are working in schools and maybe a little bit frustrated with how things have been going. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be interviewing Margaret Parks on neurodiversity. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget... Remember to subscribe.